Hello and welcome back to another episode of the DigiTalks podcast. I am your host, Natalie, and today I am joined by the very talented Mal Chia. Thanks for joining me, Mal. Thanks for having me, Nat. For those of you who don't know, Mal is an award-winning consultant, CMO and e-commerce advisor who helps brands grow profitably and sustainably. We met during his time as the Chief Marketing Officer at RiderWeb, where he oversaw 4x revenue growth across the globe. Prior to this, he was the first head of marketing at Uber in Australia, where he led the growth of UberX and Uber Eats in several markets. A reform performance marketer, he lives at the intersection of data, brand and strategy. What a summary. <laughs> <laughs> what haven't you done, Mal? I was reflecting before that I was a DJ previously. <laughs> in um, another life. Yeah, in another life. Uh, I, I used to be a, a, a journalist for Rip It Up, where I was street press here. Oh, wow, so that takes do, me back. Yeah, I used to do music and movie reviews back then. Yeah, so I, how I've, did I've you get into what? digital marketing? That's a great question. I never wanted to work. Like when I, when I, when I was at high school I, and I graduated, I just wanted to be a DJ. So I pretty much devoted like the last couple of my years of my life, like while I was studying to like learning how to mix. So this is back in the days of like turntables and vinyl. Love it. So I would go down to Central Station here in Adelaide, buy a stack of records and just mix all day long. So I had friends of mine at school, one lived nearby with Dex. So after school every day, I used to go back to his house and we'd just DJ for hours and hours and hours. So when I left school, it's like, I just want to do that. Yeah. But my parents, good Asian parents they are, were just like, if you DJ, we're going to kick you out of the house. So you need to study. Blunt. So I went, okay, all right, so I'll study. So I went to study a Bachelor of Commerce, not really understanding what it meant and yeah. what my career path would be from doing that, only because I had friends who were going to do that. So I did that and then realized after the first semester that I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went, no, screw this, I'm, I'm out. And I became a professional DJ. So for several years, I DJed professionally at nightclubs, at festivals around Australia and around Adelaide. And eventually uh, through that, I started putting on my own shows, yep. touring my own DJs you know, around the country and into Australia, where I realized that I really enjoyed the business side of things, specifically the marketing yep. side of things. And then that kind of gave me focus to then go, okay, well, actually, I'm really enjoying marketing. This is what marketing is. Wow, I want to become a marketer, which led me to go back to uni, finish my degree and come out with a Bachelor of Commerce with a specialization in marketing um, and then did my master's after that. But it was kind of through that that I kind of realized, you know, as someone putting on their own club nights, their own festivals, and I was competing against, you know, big clubs at the time who had massive budgets, you know, some of the big festivals out there who had gigantic budgets that we had to be a little bit scrappy. I couldn't afford to take out, you know, full page ads in Rip It Up yeah. or, or Onion or do like these massive radio bars in Fresh FM. Yep. So I turned to digital. Specifically, I turned to a lot of the forums, like, you know, in the mix and the scene.com.au. Yeah, right. Yeah, and started advertising there, started building up communities, connecting with like-minded people, which sort of got me onto like, wow, there's a whole opportunity here to like build up an email list, to create a website, get people to sign up. So we were doing things like encouraging people to sign up. Like we would um, we'd host these parties, bring down DJs, you know, and entry would be free if you yep. gave us your email address. So if Da-da. you didn't, you'd give me five bucks. <laughs> so I was doing that back in like 2001, I think. So I realized the importance of how powerful an email list would be, you know, so that was kind of like what it was all about. That's how I came, fell into digital marketing. That is crazy. What a story. So obviously e-commerce wasn't really a thing there. So how did you find yourself really honing in on the e-commerce side of things? So back then, 1999, you know, I was getting involved in everything to do with digital. You know, I was learning how to build websites by, you know, looking at the source code, copying and pasting it into text documents, making changes, and then saving it as HTML and opening up in a browser and figuring out how stuff worked. Then I got a crack copy of Dreamweaver. <laughs> <laughs> and started building websites. Adobe, don't sue me. And through that, I just learned everything there was about digital, including buying and selling online as well, because we 
we started trying to sell stuff online yeah, and I realised okay. that it was just an absolute nightmare how to do it. Then eBay came along and that kind of became easier and we started like selling some merch on eBay and stuff like that. But really, like e-commerce as you know it now, I really came into it when I started working in agency side. Yeah. So in my career, you know, I've kind of bounced back and forth between in-house. I was previously general manager at Fresh FM, yep. um, radio station here in Adelaide, and then spent a lot of time at a different, a few agencies as well. But it was through my experience at agencies that we had clients coming to us with like, hey, you know, I want to sell this online. And me being a very curious person, would just kind of figure out how it worked, would kind of look into, you know, what you needed to do to sell it online. Back then, had a lot of clients who were using Magento. So I had to understand how Magento worked. The had worst to figure out thing how, ever. Yeah, this is back in like 2010, I think, figuring out how product feeds worked and how that fed into Google and Google Ads and Google Shopping Ads, like in the very early days of Google Shopping Ads. So that was kind of how I figured out how to how to sell stuff online with clients coming to me with like, hey, well, how do we scale up our business? How do we actually sell this online? We've got this store, you know, and then kind of understanding how that all worked. And tell me a little bit about sort of how you've seen the space change, particularly over the last four years. I mean, what a, what a time to be alive. Yeah, I think e-commerce has definitely exploded, obviously with COVID. A lot of that has been driven by COVID. People weren't able to go out anymore. People with a lot of extra disposable income, mm. um, which has just seen the growth in e-commerce where, you know, the stats are that, you know, e-commerce went from being about 11% of total retail to about 20% in, in two years' time. So that was about 10 years worth of growth, which occurred in, in, in a period of two that's years. That's crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. However, that's kind of stalled now. Um, yes. And I'll kind of go into reasons why. But what I've seen is that, you know, as people become more comfortable with going online and shopping online, it's also increased the expectations as well. A lot of that driven by Amazon as well, where previously 10 years ago, you'd be happy to wait a week to receive something. You know, you didn't need something to be dispatched that day and with tracking to tell you exactly yeah. where it was at every single moment. Amazon set the bar so high that now everyone needs to compete at that level. You know, it's not just a matter of going on there and having a store and people being able to buy your stuff. It's about making sure you can provide that full end-to-end experience. Yeah, as consumers, yeah, our expectations are so much higher now and, you know, you need to think beyond, cool, they've purchased something, what now? Yeah, absolutely. And your competition isn't, and this is, everyone always says this, but your competition isn't just like the other stores in the mall. Your competition is everyone in the world who sells your product. And you see this huge growth in certain categories, like let's say activewear, for mm. instance, where, you know, you go back about 15 years ago, there's maybe about 20 really notable activewear companies in the world. But now there's like 20 notable activewear companies in Australia, yeah. you know, let alone other countries. And there's just this huge commoditization as well, where you know, the differentiation between products has also completely changed as well, where there is no differentiation. Unless you've created something which is totally unique in your space, the chances are someone else has the exact same thing. So the product which you sell itself is the commodity. What you actually are selling now is really the branding and the experience around that. That's kind of the most important thing now. That's where I think I've seen things change. I'm really glad you say that because I personally am a big one on brand. And I think that your product is not the most important thing. It's the brand. People invest in brand. Do you think that the growth and explosion of e-commerce particularly and the ease over the last, let's say, 10 years has made people forget how important brand is? Absolutely. Particularly during the pandemic, how easy it was to sell. I see a lot of... uh, you know, marketers now who are hanging the hats on the fact that, oh, wow, look at this. I'm, I'm, I'm fantastic. I, I egg drove whatever in the last two years. It's like everyone did. Yeah, yeah. do it 10 years ago, then we'll talk. Yeah, it's like <laughs> if, if, you, if you weren't successful during the pandemic, something was wrong. Correct. What we're seeing now in the industry, though, is very much a bit of a bloodletting because you've seen a lot of companies and a lot of brands grow very, very rapidly over mm. a couple of years and thinking that, you know, that they, they were the shit. 
Yeah. But what's happening now is that they realize that, oh my God, like I'm not differentiated, particularly when you, when they relied so heavily on channels like Facebook to, to drive a lot of their growth and a lot of their revenue. But obviously the problems now with Facebook, as I'm sure you've you've talked about with other guests, is, you know, the privacy changes with iOS 14 and 14.5. Yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, exactly. You know, and also just in terms of the reduction in Facebook's attribution window from 30 days to seven days now, you know, the ability for these channels to be able to target people right at that bottom of the funnel where they're ready to buy you know, has been severely compromised. And that's affecting people's ability to grow and scale. And it's really exposing a lot of businesses which really were very unhealthy and overly reliant on just acquiring your paid acquisition rather than focusing on having a great brand and a great product and a great experience which people want. Yes. And repeat customers, you know, the reality is, yes, there's millions and billions of people in the world, but you want people to come back. You want them to tell their friends. You want them to be brand advocates. Unless you're actually creating a product and an experience that people invest in, it's not going to happen. There's the old saying that, you know, they're not really a customer until they buy from you twice. I love that. I think that is so relevant in the current landscape. And I think people have gotten a little bit complacent when it comes to marketing. You know, you look at the real estate market at the moment, you know, everyone can sell a house. Well, it's changing, but you know, anyone can sell a house. We're going to see a massive decline in people who have decided to be real estate agents. And I think we'll see the same thing in marketing from a performance perspective. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in e-commerce land, especially, you know, there's going to be a lot of brands like over the next 12 to 18 months are probably not going to survive because they're not healthy. They haven't thought about the brand. They haven't thought about the experience. They haven't thought about what makes them different. And there's a lot of products out there which are just really me too products. You know, they're just there because they saw an opportunity. Someone like Activewear is a great space where, you know, there's a lot of brands which are just going, there's this explosion. Activewear, I'm going to do leggings. I'm going to do sports bras. Yeah. Without realizing that it's actually, it's really tough. Once people realize that, you know, there's other options available, there's less money, there's less disposable income available to go buy a new pair of leggings every four to six weeks. Yeah. What's going to happen? They're going to be more discerning with who they buy from. They're going to be thinking about who are the brands which have quality, which I can trust, you know, because I don't have an extra 80, 90 bucks to just, you know, piss away on, on, on another pair of leggings. And I mean, you know, we look at brands like Age and Shona Joy and Kukai that all launch activewear brands during the pandemic. And, you know, I look at that and go, well, I'm going to buy a dress from you anyway. So I may as well buy my jumper and my leggings. And it's just that ease. And it's that it's that brand association. Whereas if someone's going to go hunting and they are discerning, it's going to be a totally different experience. It's going to be a completely different process. Tell me a little bit about sort of when you are working with an e-commerce brand, what is your approach in terms of really nothing? down and working out what is that story? What is that unique position? So the process I generally would go through would really just be having a series of conversations, you know, with the the founders or the CEOs just to understand what problem it is they're trying to solve. I generally have a rule that I only enjoy working with brands and, you know, founders who have soul. I love that. And part of that is that, you know, it's a real struggle to work with someone who doesn't understand what they're about and who, and the, the why behind their brand. Yeah, so it's a process of understanding, like, you know, it's not just like the what you do, but it's the why you do it and the problem which you're solving. And it's amazing where you speak to a lot of people and I've had so many of these conversations where people are just doing it because there's an opportunity, so I thought I'd do it, which is fine. They can do that, but it means that you've got nothing to work yeah, with. Yeah, I need some meat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So understanding like, you know, what's the why behind the brand? And from there, then you can figure out, okay, well, how do we then, what's the articulation of that brand through different layers beyond just the why? But then, okay, well, how do you then express that? You know, how does that why express it in terms of like how you do things? You know, what's your secret source? Like what are the things which you do which are different? Is it about the technology which you use? Is it about your focus on quality? Is it about your focus on customer experience? You know, and then thinking about then visually, okay, well, what's the symbol to represent you? You know, who who are your spokespeople and things like that? You need to kind of work from the inside out with a lot of that stuff. And it's a, it can be a bit of a process to really work 
with brands to really understand what is their why. Because once you have that why and once you understand, okay, what's the why and then what's their secret sauce? What are the things which they do which they you can really lean into, mm. which makes them special? It actually makes the rest of it much easier. You know, I spent some time with a brand yesterday who was talking about, you know, their why, where you had a founder who was really clear about the why, but it hadn't translated through to the rest of the marketing team. Yeah, right. So when you look at a lot of their marketing, a lot of the marketing, it doesn't make a lot of sense because after talking to him and about the why for his brand and looking at what the marketing team was doing, there was a real clear disconnect. They were doing things because it was cool, because they saw another brand do it, but it didn't actually ladder up. why. Exactly. So now it's like figuring out, okay, well, this is your why. Everything needs to reflect that. You know, don't try to be this other brand. Don't try to be this, that, or the other be who you are, be true to yourself, you know, and I see with some of my clients, the the, the ones who are doing particularly well now and, and able to actually continue to grow through this kind of bloodletting which is happening are the ones who have that real clarity about this is who we are, this is what makes us special. And they're the ones who are run extremely healthy. They've got great margins. You know, they don't overspend on on, on paid media. They've got great organic and direct um, acquisition, um, which is coming through. They're not just 100% reliant on Facebook, which is what I see the, the unhealthy brands doing. Yeah, it, it really concerns me the amount of businesses that are so reliant on Facebook in particular. And it's just, you know, I love that you mentioned email lists before. If Facebook goes away tomorrow. I feel like Facebook and Instagram is a luxury. We are so fortunate to have it. It could be gone tomorrow. It could honestly be gone. We'll lose everything. What happens then? What's your business got to stand on? Exactly. You don't own your Facebook page. You don't own your Facebook community, no. or Instagram community. You're, you're merely renting them. That's yeah. Facebook users. So you are paying for them. You, you pay for the luxury of the privilege of being able to access Correct. those customers. They're not yours. They're Facebooks. So the most critical thing, which, which you know, I mentioned before, which I've been doing since like the early 2000s, is building lists and seeing the importance of actually owning your data and owning your customers, you know, and that's something where every place that I've worked, you know, I've seen the value of that, particularly at a company like Uber, you know, where it's not just about getting people to sign up, it's about how do you actually engage them and build that relationship with them over time, you know, through different activations and communications to keep them engaged with the product, which is the app. Do you feel like the advancements has kind of made people forget the importance of nurturing? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. As wonderful as social media has been for marketers to be able to use these channels. You know, I, I remember back in like, again, early 2000s, I, I was sitting on panels at Marketing Week, which used to be a thing here in Adelaide, you know, talking about how wonderful social media was and how it was going to transform the world. I was very Pollyanna-ish about it. You know, thinking it was going to transform the world for the better and we'd be a closer, more tight-knit community. I think we were all hopeful. <laughs> we, yeah, we were. We were. Um, but I look at it now, it's like, it's actually kind of like rotted our brains to some... some yeah. And I know you're a social media person and that that's your that that's your bread and butter but I also see the fact that you know it's kind of changed how people think where even marketers and business owners were all after this quick dopamine hit because we yeah, are all after that's like exactly the, what it is yeah we want to pay a dollar here and we get five dollars out you know we think of marketing like a slot machine yeah you know but it really it's not it's like the fundamentals about thinking about how do we actually you know raise awareness about a brand how do we actually get in the conversation so people are even thinking about us yeah and then nurturing them to, okay, then how do we make sure that when they're ready to buy our product, we're there in their consideration set? Correct. Rather than going like, we just want to shove an ad in front of you and you're going to buy right now. That's one of the biggest myths about marketing that, you know, we're going to pay a dollar here, we're going to put this ad in front of someone and within this seven-day attribution window, they're going to buy. It's like, that's bullshit. They're not yeah. going to buy. Nah. 
if you're communicating and um, targeting someone who's brand new to your brand, you just want to make sure that they start thinking about you. Then you want to make sure that they're, you're visible in the times where you know they're going to be thinking about your products. If you think about activewear, probably the most important place you can actually be as an activewear company is in the gym. Yeah. You know, making sure that you're visible there, you know, rather than just like, oh, you're just going to blast people with Facebook ads. You know, people need to see you when they're thinking about working out, when they're thinking about, man, the leggings I'm wearing don't really fit. Mm. Oh, well, what's that brand? That looks really good. Yeah. That girl hasn't pulled her tights up 10 times while she's been running. Exactly. Yeah. And I think as well, people do have that, you know, talk about the dopamine rush and we talk about, you know, I got a follower, I got likes on this. And it is so not an accurate reflection of success. I get really frustrated, you know, when we work with brands and we see incredible reach, we see incredible engagement, we see, you know, people responding to stories and sending DMs and, you know, then they turn around and go, well, we didn't have any sales this week. Well, because Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, you need to understand that we need to actually engage these people and get them invested in the brand and the story and what we have to offer. So when the time does come when they're ready... They come to you. Exactly. I think, you know, it's easy to kind of get seduced by the vanity metrics as well. I've gone like, we want more followers. We want more this. The way I look at metrics is that, you know, particularly for e-commerce, everything ladders up to revenue, right? Revenue is ultimately the most important thing. But revenue is an outcome of three things. Revenue is an outcome of traffic, average order value, and your conversion rate. So how do you work in those things? Where a channel like organic social comes into it is that organic social can impact traffic, but it's not going to impact it all the time. You need to be able to give something which people will respond to. But before that, you know, need to build that trust with your community yep. so that when you do have an ask of them, they're going to click on your link and they're going to come and buy it. You know, I've got a, a wonderful client of mine um, who has an amazing organic social community um, and they built their entire business on Instagram and stories and things like that. So when they release a new product, the sales just go crazy. You know, just it. through a single post, you know, just through a story, you know, they, they can sell like $50,000 in, in an hour. I love it. It's crazy because they've got that trust. They've earned. They've earned it. And I think that's the big thing. You know, we talk about trust. It is earned. You can't just expect because you're on Instagram and you've got a cool feed and, you know, you've got some cool influencers that all of a sudden your sales are going to go through the roof. It just doesn't work like that. In real estate, we used to talk about that trust is something that is earned over a period of time. You can't just walk over to someone and say, hey, can you just hold my handbag for me? It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's influencer marketing, right? So like influencer marketing, people expecting, I'm going to pay $20,000 to do this partnership with, you know, a Kardashian. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to get all these results. $20,000, that's cheap now. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like a million dollars. But they expect these results and yeah. this one off but you know you might get a little bit but it's not really what it's not you sustainable want. but I don't feel like a lot of influencers really have the trust when you do that you know you need to build this up over time so they need to see that association with the brand so typically yes one offs serve a purpose but the best influencer relationships I find are the ones which you can build over time absolutely and I think you know the influencer program that we built at Right Aware I mean I'm so, something I'm so incredibly proud of it was long term it was people that were so invested they were a part of the brand they were walking talking billboards basically. But they were people at the end of the day. And that came down to the fact that it was over a long period of time. It wasn't they just wore it once and ta-da, see you later. It was they were wearing it day in, day out, posting frequently without even mentioning the brand. And we talk about, you know, all the time about, you know, consumers becoming more savvy as well. They're not stupid. They know it's an ad. Yeah, yes, they know that, okay, great, you're being paid to do this because I've never seen you talk about this brand before, but all of a sudden, oh, check it out. I love this brand's product. Mm. And then you never talk about it again. You know, as a matter of fact, I never see you wear their product in their feed. You're back wearing whatever you're wearing before. But the ones where it just becomes part of them, you see them out and about. So it's not about, you know, just getting someone for like, you know, finding any old influencer and yeah. working with them. It's about finding the ones who actually fit with the brand, who actually love the brand, or if they don't, we will love the brand, you know, and really nurturing that relationship, just like a customer. 
Exactly. But it comes down to that why, doesn't it? They embody it. They're invested in the brand's story. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the story is such an important part that, that you need to have that alignment. You know, And part of that, it goes back. For me, knowing your brand, knowing your brand strategy pretty much underpins everything. If you know that, everything else makes a lot of sense. It's about aligning everything rather than just trying a whole lot of tactics and hoping something sticks. Yeah. yeah. What do we say? Throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I obviously have worked with you professionally. Something that I have loved from working with you is obviously your leadership skills and the way that you build a team. And I think that's something that people could learn a lot from. How do you really approach building a team? Where do you start? What do you look for? So building a team is different for every organization. It depends on where you are at, at what stage you are in terms of what your requirements are. Obviously, a key thing is to, to first think about, you know, what do you actually need? You know, first of all, like your first marketing hire is very different from your 20th marketing hire. Like your first marketing hire, particularly if you're doing a startup, you want someone who is a generalist. You want someone who's just going to get stuck in and just do a little bit of everything without necessarily being too deep in one area. By the time you get to 20th, you obviously start thinking, okay, well, you want specialists. You want people who who, who really understand what with their craft really, really well and can do that. What I don't believe in though is silos and creating silos. Mm. Typically what you find in a lot of marketing teams which I've been involved with is that they're very segmented in terms of like you've got a brand team here or a digital team there or an e-commerce team here or whatever it looks like and never will they talk to each other they just sit within their their little space and they specialize just in terms of their particular channel so you've got your social media person who does social media you've got the e-commerce person who just looks after shopify you've got your ads person who just looks after ads what i believe in is yes you need that in terms of a traditional org structure mm. to be able to map it out and have people look like that and then with like a manager or things like that sitting sitting over them but what I don't believe in is a top down approach to that while that might be the case on paper I believe a lot in pushing responsibility down to the people who are actually working on that and making the decisions you know rather than actually dictating from the top down you need that to be able to scale because if you're the one who's constantly making those decisions then everyone's going to be relying on you yep you become the bottleneck exactly so I, I, I like pushing that responsibility down and trust the team with that. But even within that, making sure that they are a team as well. So a big part of what I like to do is to be able to actually foster some of those connections between between different team members. Steve Jobs had a thing about Apple, you know, and, and Pixar as well, and how they designed the space where they would put the toilets between different departments for the very specific reason of being able to have those, you know, those collisions. <laughs> I love that. Where people would just be able to bump into each other and have a chat with each other rather yeah. than people just sitting in their own area and and that's it. Yeah. You know, I always find there was funny when, you know, people would just be sitting there and they'd sit there, do their work within their team. They get up and they walk off. They never meet anyone else within the team or really have those conversations. So I like to be able to foster these, um, you know, those connections between different members of the team so people understand that they're part of a team, mm. you know, and that they work together and that they're all part of the whole. An approach I like to do is making sure that, you know, when you have a problem, it's not just a, okay, social media, you need to do this, CRM, you need to do this, ads, you need to do that. It's bringing people together and understanding, hey, at a business level, this is what we need to achieve. We yeah. need to hit XYZ revenue target. We need to improve, improve average purchase frequency to this. All right, what are we going to do? Yeah. You know, and then together you collaborate and come up with that solution and then everyone understands and then you agree on the path they're going to take and then everyone understands the role they're going to play in that. But more importantly, that they're all working collaboratively on that because we're all working ultimately, like I said before, to that same outcome of revenue, driving traffic, AOV, conversion rate. Exactly right. But we need to work on it together because, you know, it's not a one plus one equals two. It's like a one plus one can equal five if we do this right. And I think in marketing as well, it comes down to fresh eyes. Sometimes we can be looking at the same thing for three, four days and banging your head against a brick wall. And then someone waltzes in from another department, they look at it and they go, oh, have you thought about maybe this? And it's like, light bulb, 
Yeah, I'm a big believer in like the best idea wins, you know, and that's something which I'm, uh, you know, I've, I, I take from my time at Uber, where Uber was very much a meritocracy, you know, in the, in the fact that it didn't matter where the idea came from, you know, we would have casuals, you know, who would come up with a great idea to run a campaign, and they'd be like, we'd assess it, we'd, we'd, we'd evaluate it by, you know, what sort of impact we expect it's going to have, we put it through like a, an ice framework of like, you know, impact, confidence, and ease, and yep. like, that's actually a really freaking good idea. Let's go do that. <laughs> Let's do it. It doesn't matter that you're the casual. The fact is that you had a great idea. Agree. And many times, you know, we'd, we'd identify these people with great ideas, you know, we and they rise up through the ranks at Uber. And there's some still ne- uh, who I worked with back when I was there in 2014, you know, who are still there, but they started off as casuals. Wow. You know, who I would get to like do flyering, you know, at events. You know, they'd go out to like these festivals and they'd flyer and give out Uber Uber vouchers. And now they're working there full time, you know, as like a senior marketing manager. Wow. I love that. I think that's really good because some organizations are a little bit old school in the sense that the ideas can only come from the big dog. Yeah, and I, I definitely don't believe in that. You know, like your responsibility as a leader is to foster a culture, you know, underneath you, mm. you know, which is sustainable, which isn't reliant on you, where where everyone is able to work and 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 execute to their full potential. Think about motivation, where you need to feel that you are actually able to excel at your craft. Yes. But also that you have the independence to make those decisions yourself, that you're not being micromanaged. And then also that what you're doing has meaning, has purpose to it. If you have those things, people can thrive. Mm. You know, you don't want a situation where everyone just sits there and waits for you to tell them what to do. And I've been those those places before where you can't make a decision without the CEO or the head of marketing telling you what to do. It becomes quite toxic. It does. It does because no one is able to to, to to live to their full potential or work to their full potential or even realize that. So being able to give people that environment, you know, where they are able to have mastery, autonomy and purpose is critical, where everyone feels like they can actually thrive in that environment. I think, and you know, and particularly in digital environments where we have to move quickly, right? Something's dropping off and or there's a trend or something, we've got to be able to move quickly. If you need to get approval from a CEO or someone higher up and it's going to take 10 weeks, you've lost the whole purpose. Yeah, and, and they're going to jump down your throat as well because they did something where you did something which they didn't like, you're going to lose that that motivation and that autonomy. And then you become just a little monkey. Yeah. So, you know, as, as a CMO, as a leader, I like to provide frameworks. You know, I think it's so important to actually provide the guardrails for how people should work. So I tend to do that through metrics, um, through KPIs, making sure that it's clear in terms of like, what do you need to achieve? You as the CRM manager, this is your revenue target. This is how much revenue we need to be driving through emails and SMSs, you know, in a, in a given period. So you know that, then you can reverse engineer that to look at how big does my list need to be? Yep. What does my open rate need to be? You know, um, what does my click-through rate need to be? You can take that target and know that, okay, well, this is how I need to operate then. I need to make sure that my open rate never gets below 30%. I need to make sure I've got a 1% click rate and then I need to keep growing my list. Yeah. You know, that, so you can start thinking about it in that way rather than just being told, okay, we need to send out XYZ campaign. You do the campaign, you send it out. You don't really care about the result. If you have ownership of the outcome because that you're accountable for that, you've got to be more motivated to come up with solutions. Yeah. Yeah, as well. Definitely being more solutions based rather than just ticking boxes. Yeah. I think along the way, depending on the team environment, particularly in silos as well, you can get really, really worn down. Yeah. And you see people there who are just, you know, you and I have been in places like this before where people are there and they're just doing a job. Yeah. They're just ticking a box of like, I'm sent this out. I did that. Cool. I'm ticking a box. That's it. They're not actually thinking about, is this actually having an impact? Yeah. But you can see what happens as well once you give people that ownership. Once you give people that ownership, it opens their eyes. They're going like, you mean I'm responsible for this? I actually have, um, I have agency? Yeah. Like, yeah, you do have agency. Great. Yeah. Like, and you're valued as an employee as well. Exactly. When you lose that and when you treat people just like cogs in a machine, one of the one of the things I hate the most is the, you know, the idea that people are replaceable. People aren't replaceable. You know, and if you work for a manager or a leader who thinks that, okay, well, do you know what? If you're not here, I'll just replace you with someone else. Run for the hills. Yeah. Run for the hills. 
toxic. Yeah, you don't want that because you aren't replaceable because organizations aren't, you know, these faceless static entities. Organizations are fundamentally about relationships. And organizations are built up of the, the relationships between the people within that organization. Yeah. So you can't just pick someone up and drop someone, parachute someone else in and expect things to work seamlessly because they're going to have a diff- different perspective. They're going to relate to people differently. You know, so your, out- your output, your outcome is going to be completely different. And they might work completely differently as well. Like we are people, we are all different. And especially when culture is so important in a workplace too. You can't just pick someone up and drop someone in and, you know, think that everyone's going to be best friends. It doesn't work like that. And especially in the days of remote working, right? Like you Mm. don't need to work for someone in that city. You're not limited by the fact that you can only work for companies, you know, within a 20K radius, you know, of you or in Adelaide, you know, within a 15 minute drive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're not limited by that. You know, with most of my clients, over half my clients are around the world or interstate. I only work with a handful of of companies based here in South Australia, you know, which also means I'm on calls from like 6am to 8pm most nights. Um, But it's beauty of the world we live in. So you need to build that culture. You need to build that culture where people don't want to leave it. You know, it's the old saying where, you know, people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. A hundred percent. How many people have I met during their time and, you know, they've said, I love what I was doing. The work was great. I really, really enjoyed it, but didn't feel like there was room for growth or I didn't feel like I was learning anything. That comes down to a person. Yeah, absolutely. You need to give people those opportunities. You need to allow them that time to grow. So taking that time as a leader to also understand what does your team want to do? You know, actually ask them, like, where do you see yourself? What do you want to achieve? You know, finding out what what pushes their buttons. Some of them are about, they just want to achieve results. Some of them are after a promotion and a, and a status thing, or some of them are after learning and development opportunities. You need to understand that and then adjust your approach for that as well so that you can provide that for them. You can give them those opportunities to either advance their career or to learn more and become an expert or whatever it is which you're looking for. Just take the time to understand. Mm. You're talking before about, you know, your first hire versus a 20th hire. And I think that's a really good thing to look at because, you know, a lot of businesses, particularly startups, they will hire their first marketing hire as a marketing coordinator, generally a graduate, and they are supposed to be a jack of all trades. Why doesn't that work? <laughs> because they're a graduate and they're an entry-level person who doesn't really understand what it is they need to do. I, I see that a lot. And a lot of it's like, you do it because it's cheap. You have to do it because it's cheap. And, you know, in a lot of organizations, you know, the founder or the CEO becomes the, the quasi-CMO. You know, they're effectively the CMO at the start. So they, they're just looking for someone just to execute and be the, you know, to, to be the arms and the legs effectively. But when you hire someone who is totally fresh and no one to learn from, either, they're never really going to get anywhere fast. So you ideally, you bring in someone who's got enough of experience so that they can actually go out there execute or learn pretty quickly. And you know, sometimes you can strike gold and find people who are just absolute go-getters and will learn and be able to just go out there and crush things, in which case you're probably looking more for. But I think the, the cultural thing, the attitude as, as, as a startup, I would be hiring for attitude much more than someone with the technical fit. Because Agreed. working at a startup at a, at a brand new business, you need people who are going to hustle hard. You need people who aren't afraid to roll up the sleeves and just get stuck into whatever needs to get done. You know, but whereas, you know, when you hire people who are like five, 10 years into the career, they're more of like, well, I don't do that. You know, I, I did that 10 years ago. I'm not going to do that now. Yeah. You know, whereas early on, you want people who are just going to get their hands get dirty. Get their hands dirty. Yeah. We talk a lot about, you know, being a jack of all trades, master of none. You obviously talked about having an understanding of a number of different facets of marketing, but truly one person can't execute and do the grunt work for SEO, Google, organic social, paid social. Like there's so many different elements. How do we educate business owners that it doesn't work like that? Is there an expectation still that that, that you'd, you that your marketing team understands everything? Your, your, your... your marketing coordinator, yeah. For me, I'm, I'm often looking on Seek just out of curiosity just to see... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) what job ads and things like that. And some of the job ads I see are 
nauseating. You know, it's th- it's three days a week and they want you to update the website, do all the copywriting, do all the socials and you're a coordinator. Good luck to those organisations. Yeah. I think really good luck to those organisations. Um, you need to manage your expectations in terms of what someone can actually do and do well, mm. you know, as well. Um, you know, at, at, at that early stage, you know, that's that's kind of where you rely on your agencies. You rely on, you know, your freelancers who can help you with that and kind of like execute on those areas where, you know, your, your internal team might not be able to. Generally, how I look at things is that, you know, you, while it's great to have journalists, even with journalists, they tend to be really strong at one thing. Agree. So you kind of get them to focus on that thing and then you find additional support for them in other areas. And then over time, you know, as you, know, as you look to other, perhaps bring some of those functions in-house. Yeah, and there's some things which are better in-house. There's some things which are better, you know, using agency for. It all depends on the organization yeah. and and what you want to do as well and who you have, you know, internally to, to manage those things. There's those, those, those organizations which think they can hire one person to do it all. You're going to burn your staff out. You know, you're going to have people who aren't going to be particularly satisfied. You know, so going back to that, that that thing about, you know, culture and people having those opportunities to grow, they're never going to have an opportunity to grow because they're always going to be like scrambling, doing one thing after the other, after the other, without a chance to really, you know, um, to, to, to have that mastery. Yeah. And I think as well, it's really off-putting too. I think I talked about this with someone else as well. You know, you see that job ad and you go, oh, I really want to work there. Or, you know, I think I'd be really good at socials for them. Oh, but they want Google. I'm not going to apply. Yeah, I think with job ads, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I was like talking with a recruiter yesterday. And actually, a lot of what I do as a, as a consultant CMO is actually hiring and building teams. Um, and so I spend a lot of time talking with like, you know, in either internal HR people or recruiters. And it's always one where the first thing they ask, is this job ad legit? Like, you know, when you look through this job ad, you know, it, this sounds like a lot. So it is a lot. We've got to scale it back. We've got to strip it right back. Because typically, like you say, the founders, you know, people who don't know what they're looking for in a role will kind of just jam everything in there. Yeah. You know, so it's about pairing it back and going, at the end of the day, what is this person going to be responsible for? And that's how I look at team building as well, that everyone within the team needs to have a real clear accountability. At the end of the day, when you strip it all back, what is this person responsible for? What do they own? What's that function within the business which only they do? You know, and they have complete you know, ownership over it. If you can't answer that, then you really need to think hard about your job ad you know, mm. in terms of exactly what you're looking for on the role. So with anything like that, if you are looking for the digital marketing corner, what's the result you're hoping for them to drive? All right, so how then they've got ownership of that result. Okay, then how are they going to deliver that? You know, And if it's a case of like, okay, well, they need to deliver it by doing all these other things. All right, well, they can't do all that. So how do you give them support to be able to deliver it on email, ads, social media? Then finding, okay, is there a candidate who can kind of own one of those things and then they need support in other areas. And I think a lot of businesses as well are quite hesitant to work with agencies. They go, well, why would I outsource that when I can just, you know, get someone else to do it? And it's like, well, do you want it done properly and do you want it done well? It's like the whole thing about, you know, um, would you would you fix your own bike toilet? Like, would, would you no. fix your electricity? No. You're going to hire someone for that. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I'm biased because obviously I own an agency. I'm biased in the sense that, you know, you, you, we're experts. You know, the, I agree. Yeah, the people who in agencies, like for the most part, you know, are experts. And, you know, at Ecom Nation, everyone who works there, you know, is, we have no juniors. You know, everyone there is very experienced and has worked in e-commerce for a long, long time. So that's the advantage you have by working with agency that you have, you know, you're not bringing in someone who doesn't know what they're doing or is just learning, you know, or doesn't have that wealth of experience behind them. But with an agency, you do have people who, hopefully work across a lot of accounts and also have, can bring in that expertise. Correct. Have seen a lot, have made the mistakes before and also know where things are headed rather than only focusing on one brand. I like that you said mistakes. In closing, because this has been amazing and I could sit and talk to you for hours because you're such a wealth of knowledge. What advice would you give to Mal five years ago? 
God, that's a really great question. Um, I've never thought about this before. Um, five years ago, the best advice I probably would have given myself would be to spend more time with my kids. It's something which, you know, uh, you know I've, I've got four kids. I've got two much older kids and I've got two younger kids. I'm, I'm doing that now with, with my younger kids. But I think, you know, five years ago, I was very, you know, focused on career. It was, that was actually at the tail end of my Uber days. Yep. Um, you know, and Uber was, 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 was hard charging. You know, it was like, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks, you know, wow. waking up first thing in the morning, you're, you're, you're doing stuff, you're late on calls to the US, but it was the culture and, and I loved it and, and I thrived in it. And, you know, I'm a very career oriented person, but I look back then and think, okay, I should have made more time for me and I should have made more time for my kids then. So look, I'm making up for it now um, with, with, with my children. Um, but five years ago, I wish I'd spent more time with them. Work-life balance is a beast. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, the, it's the ever evolving battle, I feel. Again, thank you so much for your time, Mal. I really appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening. You can jump onto our Facebook group, DigiTalks. Any questions for myself or for Mal, anything that you'd like us to talk about in future episodes or just connect with each other. Marketers, we're all friends. Thank you and we'll see you next time.